Um, I want to start with this quote, actually. It's from Ajahn Chah, who's a Thai forest master in this lineage of Buddhism that we practice here. He says, people have suffered in one place, so they go somewhere else. When they have suffered there, they run off again. They think they are running away from suffering, but they are not. It goes with them. They carry suffering around without knowing it. If we don't know suffering, then we can't know the cause of suffering. If we don't know the cause of suffering, then we can't know its release. So tonight I wanted to talk about suffering, its cause, and its release, and hopefully normalize the word suffering a little bit. been talking for a while, for a long time, and kind of coming to a close on the first circuit, or really the second circuit that I've done on the core teachings of the Buddha as we practice in early Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism, which is usually described as the four fours. And so it's the four noble truths, the four foundations of mindfulness, and the four Brahma Viharas or the four heart practices. And so in the Four Noble Truths, there's this whole list. Part of the Four Noble Truths is cultivating a path of engaged Buddhism. And one of these factors, only one of them, is mindfulness, which is what uh, I know I was pretty interested in, is what kind of brought me here is to practice mindfulness. And so I've been talking for the past several weeks on mindfulness and the Four Foundations started talking about the fourth foundation, which is where we start to bring some of the ideas that we gather through studying Buddhism and through listening to what I'm giving now, which is a Dharma talk or reading or listening to podcasts or however we uh, use or, or however we digest some of this information of actually bringing it into mindfulness practice so we have like a map of things to look for. And so these are very, I found, very practical things. I talked for a couple weeks ago about the hindrances. And so this is when we notice craving, right? When I'm sitting here and I notice that there is a part of my mind that is waiting for something to happen or wanting for something to happen, right? Obsessing over, I'm about to go out of town for two months, so like all of the things that I have to do, that kind of craving to, for that kind of momentum, has like a speed in my mind, right? And so noticing that hindrance, not that it's bad, hindrance has kind of a negative connotation, but just observing that this is one of the things that kind of gets in the way of me being able to fully be present, to actually be embodied and to be um, here for a moment is a lot of times craving. And then on the flip side, we have aversion of, of uh, hatred, you could say, is an extreme on the spectrum, but just aversion or irritability, annoyance of like not wanting something to be here that's here. I've got some pain in my leg or I have uh, my mind's too distracted to meditate, right? And so I have some aversion and so noticing that. We have restlessness and worry. We have the sleepiness that inevitably comes a lot of times with meditation. And then we have probably one of the strongest of the hindrances, which is doubt, which is where we kind of tell ourselves, I'm no good at this shit. I'm not coming back, <laughs> right? <laughs> but that's precisely why we practice, because none of us are really any good at this shit, or we wouldn't be here, or we wouldn't need to practice it, right? And so it's like, 
but we are, and, and the Buddha talked quite a bit about, mindfulness is a built-in capacity of the mind, of just knowing what you're doing while you're doing it. Right? We all have done that, whether we've sat and meditated or not. We know we've had moments of awakening where it's like, oh, I'm really pissed off right now. That feels tight and tense in my body. I want to flip this person the bird. I want to speed up or I want to yell at, you know, like we, we all have these. This is already built in, but mindfulness and sitting and committing to a practice is a really good opportunity to start to examine and to be curious about these things. And so we look at these, uh, use the information that we have to then experience for ourselves this knowing and this kind of seeing for yourself practice of mindfulness. The hindrances are one of these frameworks in the fourth foundation. I talked about the aggregates and the six sense spheres, which I won't go into too much. and then tonight, um, oh, and then we talk about the awakening factors. And then tonight, I want to talk about to close off fourth foundation of mindfulness is talking about the four noble truths, which is interesting because if you come to any Buddhist meditation center for long enough, you're bound to hear some type of talk on the four noble truths. It's really the it's what the Buddha awoke into, it's what his core teaching is. But I want to look tonight especially at how to practice mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths. It's said that the Buddha's primary teaching is that he taught mostly two things, suffering and the end of suffering. So I want to, in a little bit, in a second, normalize the word suffering, because it can be kind of intense or have certain things that come packaged with that word. But I want to say that suffering and the end of suffering, because I tend to at least focus on the suffering part, but actually the path is that towards the end, to alleviating suffering. And so why does he start with suffering? It's kind of the, the context of 2,600 years ago in India that really a good spiritual teacher would be in tune with a lot of the language of the time. And one of the ways that you would talk in as a spiritual teacher in ancient India is you would kind of offer a prescription like a medical diagnosis. So you start with the problem. You have high blood pressure. You have depression. You have suffering in your life. (laughs) And then what can we do? What's the prescription to alleviate that? Carl Jung said, um, Awakening doesn't happen by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. So the latter is not preferable and therefore, therefore disagreeable, right? But the shadow side is, is what we're really waking up to is uh, making the darkness conscious. We're actually wanting to engage and to confront some of the habits and some of the stress and some of the suffering that's very alive and well in our personal experience and in our interpersonal relationships and as a collective. 
very easier or it's a lot easier to take the wide view and be like, yeah, definitely there is some of this darkness or the shadow side or the suffering on the macro level. This is very obvious to me. So how do we end suffering? The Buddha would say that where we start is the samaditi or wise or appropriate view, that we need to look into how our view contributes to suffering. And first is like what we just talked about of acknowledging um, call it karma, but really karma has been blown into this big wild thing, but really looking at the cause and effect nature of all things, that I think a thought, it leads to another thought, I act in a certain way, it leads to another action or some type of consequence, I speak in a certain way, it's received or leads to some type of result, that every action has an equal or opposite reaction, right? Isaac Newton biting the Buddha thousand or so years later, right? This cause and effect nature of looking at the view that I actually do not live outside of conditions, that everything I do has some type of result. And so the Buddha said, uh, you need not worry, but what you should do is just to be really, really aware of how your actions create (coughs) results. And whether those results are leading towards more well-being for yourself and others, or whether those results are leading towards less well-being for yourself and others. So this is the view that we start to take on as we practice intentionally, moment to moment, looking at, you know, looking into our lives, into the shadow side, into where we get stuck. Also, a part of uh, wise or appropriate view is also the Four Noble Truths themselves, which I'm going to go over. The important thing here that I wanted to talk about is like, okay, so how do we end suffering? Wise or appropriate view? Look at the cause and effect and the nature of things. Look into the Four Noble Truths. But what's the application? Like, how do we actually do it? And part is, as we start to see moment to moment as we develop, uh, the Buddha said two things develop wise or appropriate view. One is continuous awareness, which is a willingness to check it out. Continuous awareness as we develop in mindfulness. And then also, uh, I really like this, the words of a wise friend develop wise or appropriate view. So I like this because it's like what we do anyway, right? When I'm suffering, I talk to a friend. I go see a therapist. I get some perspective on my view of the world, and they say, well, you did this, this, and this, and it led to this, this, and this, right? Cause and effect. So awakening is not done alone. Alleviating suffering is not done alone. There's the African proverb that if you want to go fast, 
go alone. If you want to go far, go together, right? The emphasis is on community. This is why we sit together. This is why we have a place to come to sit together and to talk about our suffering to whatever way we feel safe to disclose, but where we start to become more involved in intentional communities, or at least even outside of here, the Buddha talked about wise association. We start to associate with people that are safe and are willing and open to be vulnerable and authentic about what's happening for them, so I can be vulnerable and authentic about what's happening for me. Right? I, I mean, I, I, this is so real for me in my experience of like growing up as a teenager and getting the shit kicked out of me and getting bullied and wanting, uh, feeling isolated and feeling like there was something wrong with me and not having anyone to validate that experience, not having anyone to say, oh shit, that's like completely how I feel sometimes, right? And so it drives, suffering starts to really take root in isolation. But when I'm around other people that are like, oh fuck, that's horrible, right? That's awful. I feel that. I know what that's like. Or maybe I don't even know what that's like, but I'm willing to sit with you and hear what it's like. That alleviates suffering. Turn the air off. And then we also, this continuous awareness, as we make a commitment to develop some type of meditation practice, albeit if I'm being honest for myself, was very, very slow for months, even the first year or so of coming here. I mostly just meditated whenever I came here. But, you know, in the words, I started with Ajahn Chah talking about suffering and the end and knowing the cause and he really encourages that mindfulness can be done in all postures there's nothing special so whether it's five minutes ten minutes fifteen minutes whether I sit a retreat or I have a breath and some awareness in my car between point A and point B it's all in the service of helping me to become more self-aware So, starting to contemplate and bring to mind these Four Noble Truths, I outline them here as I prefer, uh, as what resonates most for me, as tasks and not truths. The word, I believe it's satya for truth, really it just means things. So there's actually nothing noble about the Noble Truths. There's nothing mystical or magical, I feel, about Buddhist practice. It's really a matter of practice, a practicality. of. And so the first truth uh, could be said that inherent in life is dukkha, this word dukkha, which you'll hear a lot. And I would translate it, but there's actually not any real good translation for the word dukkha. So inherent in life is dukkha, and what dukkha means is, uh, I like the definition stress or unsatisfactoriness the best. Inherent in life is some degree of stress or some degree of unsatisfactoriness. 
I'll read how the Buddha defined dukkha. He defined dukkha as birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha, encountering what is not dear is dukkha, separation from what is dear is dukkha, not getting what one wants is dukkha. In brief, clinging to the psychobiological human condition is dukkha. So just taking our experience personally. Right? This idea that when I was young, my mom told me, you're not the center of the universe, right? But I live and I interact with the world as if I am the center of the universe. We can't help it, right? It's just like what we're wired to do. And that that's dukkha. That's stressful to feel like shit is happening to me. Right? Developed, I talked about this a few weeks ago, this strong existential betrayalism of like this sense that the universe was just shitting all over me all the time, right? And that like that uh, the world was out to get me kind of attitude. Really taking personally even simple things like when I drop something or when I don't get my way or when the word dukkha comes from uh, kind of an imagery, the imagery of a axle from an ox cart when it doesn't quite fit right into the wheel well. And so what happens is, you know, 90% of the ride around the wheel is completely great, right? But then you hit a little bump. And that's fine, a time or two, but if you're going on like a right three-month adventure or an 80-year-old life of bumpiness, it can be stressful. It can be really unsatisfying. So inherent in life is this friction, this bumpiness. So some of this arises, some of this, so when we're mindful of dukkha, we want to start to pay attention to when stress arises, when this rub or this friction is present, which is very counterintuitive. That's where we get our name against the stream, is to actually, the task that we're being asked to do is to fully know or to embrace stress, not to turn away, to avoid, to try to fix, manage, control, and change the conditions of my life to be free from stress. Because the Buddha said it's a really fucking horrible idea because it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> he said, so you might as well start to develop a relationship to the stress in your life. To embrace it, to, to kind of get to know it. And so why is life stressful? Well, life is stressful because we see what is... We want what is impermanent, meaning what is changing to be permanent. I don't want to die. I don't want my loved ones to die. Right? This is probably the most existential, most loud one of these bits of dukkha is death itself. Right? I don't want to lose the job. I want the job to stay forever. I want the good thing. I want the ice cream cone to last forever. Right? It's like, uh, sometimes with ice cream, like, my stomach will fill up, but because it tastes so good, I could just keep eating it for hours, right? <laughs> I feel like I could eat, like, three or four cartons of ice cream just because the pleasant feeling is so good, right? 
But it can't, you know, we can't do that. We can't just accumulate pleasant experiences and get rid of all the unpleasant. The Chinese Buddhists say that life is equally 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And so as we're mindful of dukkha, let's, uh, you know, I like to look at the idea of being mindful of the, they call it the dukkha dukkha, or the physical or mental stress that comes with something as simple as like breaking your ankle. That sucks, right? Just doing that sucks. Being sick just sucks. In and of itself, it's the dukkha dukkha. It's just the shitty shit, right? It's the, it's the not fun part of what's real. And then we have uh, sankara dukkha, or volitional stressful mental activity. So these are the shoulds and the shouldn'ts. Well, if I was fucking paying attention, I wouldn't have broken my ankle, right? Or I'm so clumsy. Right, so this is where we add to the fire of what is already unpleasant or what is already unsatisfying. The shoulds and the shouldn'ts, the judgments, the comparing mind, the achievement mind, the mind that says, I won't be happy until I get mind. Because I mean, I think about that, like, if I can't be happy until I get the job, or the girl, or the car, or the thing, then what does it say about right now? It says I'm lacking that, right? It automatically creates this poverty uh, relationship of, like, then I'm, I must be missing, I must be lacking. And then as I talked about, there's the dukkha that arises in relationship to impermanence. So just being aware, and, and so we want the impermanent to be permanent. We want the, uh, we think that the impersonal is personal. That's another way that dukkha arises often, is that, you know, that I feel like if I get fired or if something happens or if someone doesn't like me, it must have been something that I said or it must have always been. Right? Even when I sit and I meditate, it's like I can have this tendency to really take everything that's happen happening very personally of, oh, every time I sit, it's like this or this always happens to me. And then the uh, kind of catch-all is that we also see the unsatisfactory as satisfactory. We think that if we just, you know, I think that if I can just get the conditions good enough, right, if I can just get that one more thing in the right place, then I'll be satisfied. Right? And so that's kind of a trap a little bit too. So just being aware and just being... As we, as we go throughout life, as we sit and as we practice, we get opportunities to watch and to look for these things. And so the practice is to see clearly, to fully understand these things, and then to embrace. So that's, that's where the rubber meets the road for me, is to actually care for what's difficult. The wise response to pain is actually compassion, is to meet what's difficult with some care. I think about this when I'm in relationship with other people, I'm experiencing some pain on some level, it's like, 
Like the worst thing you can do is to like not be engaged, to not listen to me, to not be present. What I really want is I want when I'm hurting, I want someone to be willing to be present for me. Not fix me, not change me, but to be present and to say, I support you, I've got you, right? So we, we can practice this internally to ourselves. Vinny Ferraro, against the stream uh, teacher, he says, there are only two parts of our experience, what's loved and what's longing to be loved. Right, And so how can I start to acknowledge that even my shame and even uh, my anger and even these parts of myself that I really don't want to accept, how can I start to welcome those to have a seat at the table, right? <clears throat> So because of dukkha, the second noble truth, because of this unsatisfactoriness in life, this stress in life, is that we get tanha, reactivity, which we've already been talking about quite a bit, because they go hand in hand, right? Because life, because impermanence is real, and because um, life has its ups and downs, what happens is I naturally have a craving that arises, a craving for life to be satisfying, a craving or a clinging to pleasant experiences, right? Holding on to the relationship for dear life when it was done like four months ago, right? I'm sure most of us can relate to that, of like the clinging after the idea of what I want it to be rather than the reality of what it is. You know, and so it's, it's, it's so tricky, and that's the thing that I continue to want to say, is that e all of this is easier said than done, but that it is a practice, too. Right, so we embrace fully known, and then we start to try to practice letting go of our reactivity. And you can't let go without letting in, right? So letting in the dukkha, letting in the stress, knowing, holding, feeling, being with, what's difficult and painful, and then letting go. You know, and this is, we've all experienced times where we constantly hit our head against the wall, right, do the same shit over and over again, and then we finally get it. It's like, oh, damn, I just shouldn't hit my head against the wall anymore. <laughs> like, I think I'll stop doing that now, right? But we have to know, and it's, and, it, and it's not just a knowing that someone can say, hey, you should stop doing this. I've had that happen a million times. You should really stop smoking crack, right? That's not good for you. It's like, no, I'm cool, man, you know? like, And then you hit the wall and you're like, oh, I fully know the suffering that comes from these causes and conditions and what I'm participating in. And how can I care? How can I respond wisely to this? Well, I want to let go of my reactivity, you know? And in that case, it may be like the addiction, the relationship, the thing... And sometimes it's just our relationship to the thing. Oh, well, actually, I'm going to stop expecting this person. I'm going to stop expecting this person to be any different than they are because every time I see them, they're this way. Maybe letting go of reactivity can be setting healthy limits and boundaries. And then when those boundaries are crossed, making the decision to be not in that relationship any longer, right? 
And so it is tricky. There's a lot of fields to explore here with both of these things. So just for some um, practical knowledge, if you're one of these people that like the lists of things. So I think there are three ways that we mostly react, and they're around three feelings. We have pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Right, Everything that can be known and felt is either known and felt as a pleasant feeling, a pleasant thought, a pleasant taste, a pleasant smell, a pleasant sound, a neutral one of these sensations, or unpleasant. And so my tendency, my reactive, automatic habit tendency is to crave and to then cling to pleasant, uh, to avoid, to push away, to be averse to unpleasant. And so we start practicing compassion towards unpleasant of being able to hold and to tolerate what's uncomfortable, to make skillful moves away from situations that are unhealthy or unsafe for us, but also to develop some tolerance for pain. Like, okay, well, if this is a part of the deal, I'm going to have to sit through my back sweating right now, right? I'm going to have to sit through my pain in my knee. And this becomes especially apparent when we sit longer retreats. If you really, you know, I'm about to go sit for a month with a a monastic uh, in New Mexico, and so you don't, Eat, you only know, eat twice a day, and you kind of create these conditions where you just live in a way that's good enough, right? You kind of renounce the extra, not needing or having to have so many things to crave and to want for. But then you sit down and you practice, and there's all this body pain, and there's this, you know, and, and you can start to develop more of a relationship to pain. That's why mindfulness is so helpful for people with chronic pain, because there's the pain itself, and then there's my story about it. So if you have chronic pain, what happens when the pain comes back up? Maybe it's only a 3 on a scale out of 10, but the mind remembers 10. And so mindfulness has some curiosity and says, no, no, let's see, let's see where it's at. Oh, it's only like a 3, right? Or no, this is a 10, this is really bad. So we have embracing dukkha, fully knowing. We have this letting in and then letting go of reactivity. And then we have the beholding. This is the best part, right? The actually beholding the cessation of the reactivity when we can actually witness the changing of the stress, the leaving of the reactivity of how the relationship to the stress changes over time. You know, we start to lose the desire to continue to react in the same way. Because that's what's so shitty about meditation is is that you sit down and all you get is like a lot of what you don't like. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like at first it's just like, really a lot of what you don't like, but then what happens is you see how you relate to it. You see how you relate to it over and over and over again, and as our relationship starts to change, we start to lose the desire to judge ourselves and to hate ourselves because it's painful. We start to lose the desire to, um, you know, to react in these ways. 
So we get to behold the cessation of the reactivity. And again, I mean, normalizing this, we've all experienced these things, where you've had a moment of awakening, and you've seen the way out, and you took the way out, and you saw, you know, I always love using relationships, because most of us can identify with this. You've been in the bad relationship, you stay way too long, you eventually get out, and a few months down the road, you're like, I fucking feel amazing, right? I'm like a different person now. Right? It's behold that and to see that because that's just as important as seeing and embracing the dukkha and letting go of the reactivity is actually seeing the result that you get from doing that, from letting go of the reactivity. Sometimes if uh, you've been coming for a while, this is where we talk about the joy of renunciation. Renunciation being this intention of not needing anything extra if i actually it's really weird because i get off retreat i just came from a eight day or a seven day training retreat and you know you eat three vegetarian meals you have oatmeal every fucking morning right you have to sleep with roommates and you basically are just you take what's whatever's offered you don't really have much say so and you think this would suck and people tell me all the time oh you're going to be silent for a month that must be miserable right and but really it's actually quite the opposite now it's a hard sell to get there to get to the point where you're just taking what's offered but it's nice i mean there's something nice about just not having to have so many goddamn preferences all the time right so i go okay i gotta go eat the shitty oatmeal and then i gotta go walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and i'm gonna go to lunch and eat some more shitty food and then you know it's just like very simple it's outlined so there can be some joy that comes from living more simply and then letting go of these needs to have the wanting and the grasping and the pushing. <clears throat> and then lastly, the fourth task is to cultivate a path. And so I like to say this still one of my favorite quotes is uh, Joseph Goldstein says that happiness, this ever-elusive thing uh, that I've always wanted my whole life, he said that happiness is a collection of good habits, right? It's not this place that I'm going to arrive at if I just do enough and I just, you know, hunker down and sit for five hours a day, you know, and all of the things, but it's, it's collecting um, habits. It's looking into view and intention. It's looking into speech, action, and livelihood. It's looking into effort, mindfulness, and concentration. These are the, this is the Eightfold Path. It's looking into all of these areas and just seeing, and seeing if I can tune them up a little bit. Right? There's always that one part that I've just put way out in left field. Right? It's like, I've got these seven on lock, and I'll focus on those sometimes. It's like, no, bring that one back, right? And look at that, too. So cultivating a path. For those of us who have maybe been in 12-step recovery, right, that's a path. That's a 12 steps. We have the eightfold path. We have, you know, all these different therapies. Dialectical behavioral therapy has all these skills. Cognitive behavioral therapy has all these skills. We need, we need support. And we need, and I'll close with this, we need accountability. We need one another. Um, you know, we don't... We don't wake up, we don't liberate our heart and mind alone. 
I don't think it's possible. I definitely don't think the Buddha thought it was impossible. Was possible. He said that the Sangha or the community is the whole of the Dharma. I'll close with uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's a monastic, a Buddhist scholar. He does a lot of translating the early texts. This is what he said about this path towards awakening. He said, Liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there is a steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. So I like to say, it doesn't matter if you're new here, you've been coming forever, this is the open discussion portion of the group, so uh, we want to hear your voice if you want to share something. Um, Don't be shy, or you can be shy, uh, but speak up if you want, there's space for that. Um, So the floor is open, thank you.